All right. Well, thank you for that. You guys are doing well this morning. Uh, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, really chapter 2. But we'll be in chapters 1 and 2 this morning as we continue our series, Align, a church aligned with God's will. And this morning we're going to find out that a church that is aligned with God's will is committed to loving Jesus above all things. Committed to loving Jesus above all other things. So hopefully you found your place in Revelation chapter 2. Now I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and we will read down to verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. The angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we come to you this morning thankful that we are able to gather together as the church, that we are able to hear your word, God. And Lord, I pray as we walk through this text this morning, as we begin to look at the seven churches of Revelation and the seven letters that Jesus has written to them, God, that you might convict us where we may need to be repentant. And you might also help us to carry on where we are doing well, God. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chores. I recently looked that word up in the dictionary, and chores are defined as a routine task especially a household one. And they also provided a, a second definition in case that one didn't do it for you. They said an unpleasant but necessary task. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I agree 100% with the dictionary's definition. I, I hate doing chores, repetitive household tasks, making the bed, unloading the dishwasher, Washing and, and folding clothes, taking out the trash, wiping off the counters, vacuuming, right? We, we, all, we all have to do these things. And I don't know too many people who delight in these things, who, who love to do these things. Most of us do them out of duty rather than delight. And the same probably goes for the tasks that you have to do at, at work or school. Many times when you, when you go to a job, you get a, you get a job description. And this job description outlines all of the things that you must do as an employee of that company or as a school, right? Your, your professor, they may give you a syllabus and say, this is all the things that I expect of you. This is what you must do to complete this class. 
And these are tasks that we are responsible for doing. And so if you're at work and, and you, do not, you do not do these tasks, well, you might get fired. If you're in school and you don't complete all the assignments that the professor wants you to complete, well, you're probably not going to pass the class. Life is full of chores and duties we are responsible for doing on a regular basis. Some of these might be things that we enjoy doing. Not everybody hates every aspect of their job or doesn't like every aspect of their job. There are, there are duties and things that you probably like. And that's the same with school. So there are some things that we like doing. There are some things that we probably don't enjoy. And because we are so accustomed to chores and duties, we can be tempted to think of the Christian life in that way. Right, along with doing the dishes and making up our bed and, and folding the laundry, we are to read our Bibles. We are to, to tell others about Jesus. We are to, to pray to the Lord. We are to tithe. We are to come to church on Sunday. Just more tasks on an already long list that, that we must do to fulfill our Christian duties. Week in and, and week out, we, we trudge down this list. We go through the motions. We check things off. And then Monday comes and, and, and we do it all over again. But does that sound like your life? Does that sound like your relationship with Jesus and the church? Do you live the Christian life out of duty rather than delight? Is, is that what it means to be a Christian? Is this, is this all that we have to look forward to? Is this what we are calling other people to do? Should we put prayer and Bible study and, and tithing and church attendance on our list of chores? Should we think of these things as duties? Or is there another reason besides duty that should spur us on to live for Christ? As we begin this morning, we find ourselves in the revelation of Jesus. Specifically at the beginning of the letter where Jesus, through John, is writing to the seven churches that are listed here. And we're going to look at each of these churches over the next several weeks. Now I know many people view Revelation as this book that is, that is strictly about the future. But, but that's not entirely true. Revelation is prophetic in nature. It, it's pointing to what will occur in the future, but it is also for the here and now. It is apocalyptic, prophetic literature. And an apocalypse is... A revealing or a revelation. This is where the, where the book gets its name. It, it is, a, it is a, a revealing or a revelation of, of that which is hidden. And Jesus pulls back the veil, if you will. Jesus reveals what, what is happening behind the scenes of the world and what will happen in the future. And Jesus does not pull back the veil to create speculation. Jesus doesn't pull back the veil to, to create debates among different groups of people. But, but Jesus pulls back the veil and he has John write this letter in order to provide Christians with hope. Christians who are facing persecution. John's been exiled to the Isle of, of Patmos, the place for, from which he writes because of persecution. Domitian was the Caesar of the day, and he, he thought of himself as a lord. He thought of himself as, as a god. He was wicked. In regard to Domitian, one commentator says this, Imagine living in a world ruled by a man who would leave his brother to die, seduce his own niece, kill people for making jokes about him, and then demand to be addressed as lord and god. Domitian was an evil man. Domitian was a persecutor 
of the church. And Jesus writes to these persecuted churches to provide them with hope in the midst of the persecution. Churches throughout the centuries have, have needed this hope as well. And this is why we have this letter in our, in our Bibles. This is why it is here for us to, to look through and, and to read and to, to gain hope from. The American church at this point has been very blessed. We haven't really experienced much persecution, but, but the time might be coming when that might be the case. Some churches, even through this, this pandemic, are experiencing persecution. And this letter, along with the rest of God's Word, is meant to provide us with hope. And while Revelation is a fascinating study, we're not going to go through the entire book of Revelation. Our focus for this series will be the seven churches to which Jesus directs John to write here. And these churches are important because every church in every age faces the same challenges that these churches faced. Indeed, the greatest need and the challenge of a local church is to remain faithful to Jesus and to continue to align itself with the will of God. These churches, just like the church today, struggled with aligning themselves fully with the will of God. And many of these churches are aligned with God's will in, in several areas. As we will see, Jesus has some, some nice things to say about the church at Ephesus. But there are other areas where these churches are not aligned with God's will. There's a corporate misalignment that takes place. And because of that, these folks have been rebuked by Jesus. And while I'm sure that rebuke stung, the advantage they had over today's church was that Jesus specifically pointed out to them what they needed to correct. Right? We, we, don't, we have this disadvantage, right? Jesus is not writing specifically to us. Jesus is not telling us exactly what it is that we must correct. We are left to do some personal and some corporate soul searching to see what Jesus might have against us, what we might need to repent of as a church. Church, we are not perfect, which is why we must undertake this study, which is why we must examine ourselves with an eye towards aligning ourselves with God's will. With that in mind, today we begin with the church of Ephesus, and the church of Ephesus is unique among these churches because, you know, we're, we, we are able to read about this church in the book of Acts. Paul is the one who, who planted this church. Paul writes letters to this church. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, as well as Apollos, ministered at this church. At a later date, Paul returned and he spent three years serving at this church. Timothy, Paul's young protege in the faith, also ministered in Ephesus, working to strengthen the church in both practice and, and doctrinal purity. And commentators further believe that John actually ministered at this church. The Isle of Patmos is just 60 miles away. This is where John is exiled at this time and where John is writing this, this letter from. Ephesus was blessed to have many faithful ministers over the years. And we know from Acts chapter 19 that Christianity took off in Ephesus. So much so that the silversmiths who made the shrines to Artemis were, began this riot because nobody was buying the shrines anymore. But it seems times have changed in Ephesus. Since Paul wrote these letters to the church, it has been 35 to, to 40 years. A lot can happen in 35 years to 40 years in the life of a church. Just consider Eastridge. 35 to 40 years ago, this church was known by a different name and it existed in a completely different community. A lot can happen in 35 to 40 years in the life of a church. 
And while a lot can happen in a church, one thing that is consistent is that Jesus is present in the life of the church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. You see, we learn here that Jesus is the founder of the church. Jesus is the sustainer of the church. He holds the church's angels in his hand, which represents the church's angelic messengers, as well as he walks among the lampstands of the church, representing the light and the ministry of the church. And he is the one who either allows their light to shine, or he is the one who snuffs their light out, depending on whether they are aligned with God's will or not as a church. Jesus has the right to close these churches down because the church is Jesus's church. Church is not our church. It doesn't matter how long we have attended a church, what, what we have accomplished or what we have contributed to the church. The church is not our church. Instead, the church is Jesus's church. And what we learn here is that Jesus decides whether the church continues to shine as a light for the gospel and to minister in that community or not. No one else does. The deciding factor is not how many people, how many ministries you have, what the church has accomplished in the past, how long the church has been around. Rather, the deciding factor for whether a church is able to continue to shine their light for the gospel and to continue to minister in Jesus' name is whether they are aligned with God's will as a corporate body or not. And as we learned last week, we learn about God's will in God's word. And so in other words, if you are not willing to do what God's word says, you are very likely on the trajectory to be snuffed out by Jesus and your church is going to close. If you do what God's will says that is found in his word, then you may remain open and Jesus may continue to use you as a gospel witness in the community in which you exist. You see, the church is Jesus's church, and the church is not primarily for us, nor is it about making ourselves comfortable or meeting our own preferences. Rather, the church exists for Jesus and for his glory, and our job is to make Jesus's name known for his glory. That is the sole purpose of the church, to make disciple-making disciples for the glory of Jesus. That is it. And Jesus has a right for his name to be known because Jesus is, as John opens this book here in Revelation, he is the eternal priestly king. He is the lamb slain for our sins, the first fruits of the resurrection, the alpha and the omega, the one who deserves our worship. Jesus has a right for his name to be known. And we as the church are placed here to do just that as we align ourselves with God's will in his word. Jesus knows whether we're operating according with his will or not because Jesus is present in the life of the church. Jesus walks among the lampstands of the church, we are told here in Revelation. He knows our works, he knows our heart, and he determines whether we continue or not. And sometimes the work of the church pleases Jesus. So look at the text in verse 2. I know your works, he says your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now skip down to verse six. 
Let, yet this I have against you. Yet, yet this you have, excuse me. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, sometimes the church, the work of the church aligns and it, and it pleases Jesus. In this instance, the church has has patiently endured for Christ's sake. They they live in the middle of a hostile society that is is at odds with their goals and their effort to make Jesus' name known and for Jesus alone to be worshipped. Domitian, who's the Caesar, we talked about him, he he believes that he is a Lord and he is a a God and he is is persecuting the church. He is actively seeking to get rid of the church. The Jews in the area, they also oppose the church. We know from Acts 19, because of the the church's Christian witness, the silversmiths, they, they made a major riot in the city because their stuff was not being sold to people. They weren't making any money. And I'm sure there are many other ways in which this church is being persecuted. This church is being marginalized, but they have patiently endured these things for the sake of Christ. And Jesus commends them for that. We also learn the church didn't allow evil people to remain. Those who who had evil works were not allowed to continue in the church. They didn't bear with them. Instead, the church practiced biblical church discipline. Those who were not repentant were not allowed to continue in the church. They weren't allowed to affect the congregation with their evil character and their immoral lifestyle. Jesus saw this as a good thing, but we often think of church discipline as a negative thing. But it's not, it is, it is positive. It's not only what is best for the person who is exhibiting, you know, an immoral lifestyle or, or who is going against God's will and his word because they are being called to repentance. They are being called to align themselves with God's will for the sake of their own soul. Church discipline, holding others accountable is what is best for the person as well as it is what is best for the church at large because it provides protection. The church is protected from the influence of those who are not aligning themselves with God's will, as well as we'll see in a moment, it protects the church from false teachers. And while the church at Ephesus held others accountable for their sins, many churches are unwilling to do this. And while churches are not willing to practice church discipline, when they do that, they're not, they're not being loving. Instead, they're actually acting in a selfish manner. If you aren't willing to speak the truth into someone else's life for fear of a lost relationship or the difficulty that it might bring you, you are not acting in their favor. Instead, you are acting out of your own self-interest. You are allowing that person to continue to walk down a path of sin and destruction and to cause difficulty in the church, as well as you are failing to protect your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from their influence, and that is not loving that is selfish. The church at Ephesus understood this, which is why they practiced church discipline. They did not allow evil people to remain in the church. They did not allow people who were not aligned with God's will to remain in the church. Church discipline is not negative. Church discipline is not unloving. Jesus himself teaches about church discipline in Matthew 18. Jesus commends this church here for doing it. Moving on, we see next that the church protected itself from false teachers. What Paul implores them to do in Ephesians chapter 4, they, they do. They, they grow in their knowledge of the truth and they test others who, who come to them as messengers and teachers to make sure that their teaching is aligned with God's will. 
And they do this to protect themselves and to protect others in the church. And we must do the same. We must test those who teach. That doesn't mean that we sit down and we hand them a test before we allow them to be a teacher, but it means that we are constantly monitoring their doctrine and their life to make sure those things match up with God's will. You should never take someone's word for it when it comes to the Bible. You should always go home and you should always open up the word and see if it matches what this person has been said. That goes for people on television. That goes for books that you read. That goes for studies that you do. You should always, always, always Examine the word for yourself. Lastly, we learn that the church hated the work of the Nicolaitans. And while the Nicolaitans were really well known in in this day, we'll see another church that talks about them as well, but we don't really know much about them. And what I've been able to piece together from different commentators is that they were a cult who practiced sexual immorality and they hosted these idolatrous feasts. They they might have been those who, who even perpetuated this emperor worship. Either way, they were an immoral cult that had power and and sway over the people in the Roman Empire and the Ephesians that this church here, they they opposed them. They hated their works and they, they counseled their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ not to follow them. And what that tells us is that we must know the works of the people in the culture. We must know what the culture is saying. We must know where people could be led astray and we must then counsel each other to stay away from such and such teaching or such and such speaker or such and such cult or whatever it might be. We must do that. But even though they were aligned with God's will and and, and in in, in their works and their theology, there was one thing that Jesus had against this church at Ephesus. What Jesus had against the church at Ephesus reveals to us that a church aligned with God's will is committed to loving Jesus above all other things. The reason they weren't committed to loving Jesus above all other things is because this church, Jesus tells us, has lost its first love. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now what this tells us is that doctrinal fidelity and works are not enough. Jesus wants our heart as well as our hands and our head. And we should have a deep love for Jesus. And it is out of this deep love that we have for Jesus, we are then to go out and we are to work. We don't work just to to work to busy ourselves. Instead, we work because we love Christ. Our love for him, which should be a love that is greater than any love for, for anything else in the world, that love should propel us to continue in the faith and to work in the church. And if we're going to work out out of a deep love for Jesus, we, we've got to understand what true love actually is. Because of our cultural understanding of love, we are susceptible to misunderstanding passages like these and other passages that use the word love in it. You see, how does our culture define love? Well, our culture defines love as a feeling. And when something or or someone makes us feel good about ourselves, when we experience joy or when we experience pleasure, when we when we say we, we say about that thing or that person, we love them. And it's this definition that allows us to say that we love cars and we love trips and we love ice cream and we love our dog and we love our spouse all in the same sentence. The problem with this definition of love is that that when a person or object no longer makes you feel good about yourselves, when they no longer puff you up, then then what happens? You you fall out of love with that person. And when that happens, we hear people say things like, I've fallen out of love with them. I don't love that thing anymore. I'm I'm getting divorced. 
We've fallen out of love. Are we breaking off, we're, we're breaking off the engagement because we have fallen out of love with one another. But love is not a feeling. Love is an action. When we say we, we love someone, we are saying that we are committed wholeheartedly to that person. We are saying that we are willing to sacrifice for them, to give our all for them. No one or nothing else captures our attention like they do. Contrary to the culture we continue to love despite a way a person makes us feel. And that's what true love is and, and that has disappeared in this church which has resulted in the church going through the motions. The church is just muddling along. They, are, they see the Christian life as, as duty rather than delight. In reality, their, their heart is, is given to something else. Something else has, has captured them. Something else provides them with delight and pleasure and joy, the, the delight and pleasure and joy that Christ should provide. And how do we know when this occurs? How do we know when we have lost our first love? Well, let me give you several reasons when we minister out of duty rather than delight. You see, it should be a delight to minister for Christ, to tell others about Jesus, to help others grow in their faith and seeing others grow in their faith and doing ministry. Man, that, that, that should just be a delight for us. It should be exciting and, and humbling all at the same time. We are sinners that God has saved and that he uses us as his instruments to preach the gospel to other people and to help other people grow in their faith with, with Christ. That's a privilege. That is simply amazing that that would actually take place. And being able to minister on Christ's behalf should bring us delight. Delight that we are actually used by God as his instruments to do the work of ministry. And we also know we have lost our first love when we fail to love others. Our love for others is birthed out of our love for Jesus. If we don't love Jesus, then we won't love other people. And if our love for Jesus has grown cold, you better believe that our love for others will grow cold as well. And when our love for Jesus wanes, we're gonna find ourselves acting in, in harsh and ungracious ways with fellow believers in Christ. As well as we're often gonna fail to speak the truth into other people's lives. If we love others, we will both be kind and gracious as well as we will be willing to speak the truth into their life. Yeah. We also know we've lost our first love when we minister for our own accolades rather than the glory of Christ. If we, if we minister to make a name for ourselves, then then we've lost our first love. Our sole purpose should be to glorify and to magnify Christ. Those who love him will seek to do just that. They will decrease and he will increase in their life and in their ministry. We also know we've lost our first love when we view an area of ministry as our ministry and we're not willing to change anything about it or let it go. Sometimes things need to change. Programs have to die in order for the church's mission to succeed and us to make disciples. But, but when we are not willing to let that happen, that might be a sign that we care more about the ministry than furthering the name of Christ and making disciples in the community. Next, we know we've lost our first love when we give our affections our attention, our time, our energy to something or someone else over Jesus and his church. This might be a career. Man, we, when we are more willing to sacrifice for our career than Jesus, we have we've probably lost our first love. 
This might be money. When we hold on to our money, instead of willingly giving our money to support gospel ministry, we most likely have lost our first love. If you don't give to support the ministry of the church, you, have, you love money and what it can buy you more than you love Jesus. Giving to support the gospel ministry of the church is, a, is at its core a heart issue. It is that you love something else more than you love Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel. Status or wealth, when we see the accumulation of these is greater than Jesus, then we have lost our first love. Sports, when we care more about playing or watching sports than, than worshiping Jesus, we have lost our first love. Church should not end, and we shouldn't run out the door instead of ministering or, or fellowshipping with others just because the football or baseball or basketball or soccer game is on. It is a privilege for us to freely gather together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and to worship the almighty Lord of this universe who has provided us with salvation. Amen. Jesus we should love him and he should matter to us more than the big game. Fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ should matter to us more than going and watching the big game. Unless you're having a fellowship with one another, right? Then maybe that's, that's okay. But, but we're not going to run out just because we got to go watch the big game. Now, when you think about this list, do you love these things more than you love Jesus? Are you willing to sacrifice for these things more than Jesus? Are your affections directed towards these things more than Jesus? Do you believe these things will fulfill and satisfy and provide meaning and purpose in life more than Jesus? Do you give your time and your energy and your money to these things more than Jesus? If you do, you may have lost your first love. And that can, can occur despite doctrinal fidelity, good works, rooting out false teachers, and not following cults. See, if we are going to be a church that is aligned with God's will, we can't be a church that just goes through the motions. Instead, we must be a church that is committed to loving Jesus above all other things. And when we find we love something more than Jesus, we must repent. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When we find that our love for Jesus has waned, we must repent. We must turn back to Christ and we must begin working out of delight rather than duty. If we don't, if we continue to, to go through the motions, thinking that we are pleasing God with our works despite really loving Him, then we are at risk of being shut down by Jesus. God does not need our church. God does not need our works. Nor does He want our works without our heart. In Hosea 6.6, 6, we read, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, if we find that we have lost our first love, then we must repent. We must turn from that which is stealing our love and we must turn back to Jesus. If we don't, Jesus says, he will come and remove our lampstand. Now say you find that you've lost your first love. How do you get it back? 
How do you warm your heart to Christ again? How do you keep yourself from from losing your first love in the first place? Well, we have to constantly meditate on the gospel. I don't think it's an accident the letter of Revelation here opens by magnifying Christ. So look at chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John opens his letter with the gospel. John opens his letter magnifying Christ's work on our behalf. He's reminding these churches and he's reminding us that that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. Jesus died on our behalf. He spilt his blood for our sins. He freed us from the bondage of sin and death. He has brought us into his kingdom, making us sinners priests who represent him on his behalf, mediating his message of redemption to others. Christian, if reflecting on the gospel does not warm your heart, I don't know what will. And so we must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must constantly meditate on the gospel. We never move past the gospel. The gospel is not just this thing that gets us into the Christian life. The gospel is something that we continually go back to and we meditate on. It is what empowers us to live out the Christian life. The gospel should fan the flames of our heart for Christ, keeping it burning hot. And so if you've lost your first love, Meditate on the gospel. If you want to keep from losing your first love, meditate on the gospel. Stay focused on the gospel. We never move past the gospel. We must constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. A church that is aligned with God's will is a church that loves Jesus above all other things. Church, do you love Jesus above all other things? Or has something else captured your affections? Church, are you going through the motions right now? Do you live out the Christian life out of duty? Or do you live it out of delight? If you call yourself a Christian, you must love Jesus above all other things. If you want to become a Christian, you must love Jesus above all other things. Believing He is your Lord and your Savior and repenting of your sins and turning to Him. Church, let's be known as a church that loves Jesus above all other things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to gather together to worship you, God. Lord, we ask that you would convict us where we need to be convicted as we examine these churches and that we might repent where we need to repent, Lord, so that we might be able to continue gospel ministry in this city. 
And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.